worked out. Okay, so welcome back, and uh, we are in a Bible study in the book of Numbers. You can be preparing Numbers chapter 19. Before we get started, and as you're kind of getting ready for that, let me just say that after today, we'll be taking a break from Numbers for the Christmas holiday, and starting next Sunday, uh, we're going to have a little Christmas series, and the series is going to be called The Eternal Purpose of Christmas. We're going to be looking in the Gospel of Luke, no surprise there, and uh, we'll be looking at the first three chapters. It'll be a three-week series, and that will end on December 22nd, which will be our big Christmas service. You'll be hearing more about that coming up next week as well, but this is a great opportunity for you to invite your friends. You know how it is. A lot of times there's people who don't normally attend church, but they'll attend in the Christmas season, but I tell you, when they won't attend is if you don't invite them. You got to ask them. And so if you take the opportunity, invite some of your friends, and we'll bring some new people in, and we'll be sharing the gospel, of course, as well. And it's just a good opportunity to celebrate this season and to, and to hear the word of the Lord. Okay, let's get back into what we have. Um, many of you may know that uh, have been friends of this church, of mine, and uh, have taken mission trips to the country of Albania. There's been a recent tragedy this last week. There were many earthquakes and a lot of suffering, and Fortunately, our friends and spiritual family are fine. Uh, there's some damage to some homes, so people are displaced, and um, even in the church building, there's some damage, and, and so they actually had to meet this morning in homes because they're not 100% sure that it's safe to go back into the building where the church is, and the, there's actually a, a death toll that's rising. It's over 50 that have been confirmed dead in that, and, and hundreds that have been injured, and etc., etc. It's, it's been quite the issue. Uh, it'll be something we'll be praying about tonight at the prayer meeting, um, but, but I use that as a current illustration of any time that terrible things happen to other people around you, and uh, we're going to be looking at that here in a second in the book of Numbers, but regardless of whether or not the, the terrible thing that happened was your fault or the result of sin or rebellion, like it was in the book of Numbers, for example. One thing's for sure is that when tragedy strikes others near you, it also affects you. It also affects you, right? I mean, you can't just sit back and watch the suffering of others and be unaffected. And when others are being destroyed, whether that be literally, physically, or emotionally, or spiritually, I mean, it, it has an impact on you. And, and that's kind of what we're dealing with as we get into the book of Numbers. Now, if, you'll, if you've been with us in our study, you'll remember that in recent chapters, uh, there's been a lot of death that has gone on as a result of God's judgment, primarily, on a lot of rebellion of the children of Israel. And... Uh, what we saw, for example, in Numbers chapter 11 is that many people died in a plague after they were complaining about being sick of the manna. And God brought in the quail, and they ate so many quail, but together with the quail was a disease. And many people died. In Numbers 14, we saw the story where the people, you know, didn't go in because the spies didn't have enough faith to trust the Lord, and they were rebuked and eventually said, okay, 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 we'll go in now after the Lord said, don't go in now. And then after that, then they kind of they got their tail handed to them by the Canaanites and the Amalekites. And, well, there was a lot of death as a result of disobeying God in that case. And in number 16 that we recently studied was the rebellion of Korah, where the ground opened up and swallowed alive, you know, 250-plus people. Uh, and then afterward, they continued to murmur and complain, and God sent a plague where total about 15,000 people died. Now, this is in a relatively short period of time, and I say that to say that in the camp of the children of Israel, there would have been a lot of dead bodies laying around. I mean, just think about it. Put yourself in the story. There would have been a lot of people who have died and their bodies are laying out in the hot sun. What were they supposed to do about that? Just leave them there? No, they had to bury them. And so while they were doing that, I mean, as of necessity, they had to come in contact with the dead bodies of these men and women. Now, in the Old Testament, that rendered them, by coming in physical contact with a dead body, 
unclean for seven days. In other words, the tragedy that affected the others in a very drastic way well, now affected them as well. It now affected them as well. And they weren't the ones who were without faith, right? But the one thing I want you to remember is this, and I start off your notes with this statement. The God of mercy always provides a way to cleanse uncleanness. Uh, they were unclean for seven days as a result of touching the dead carcasses of human beings, but God is going to provide a way to clean up that uncleanness. And that's just due to his goodness. That's due to his love. That's due to his mercy. So today we're in Numbers chapter 19, and we're going to look at a, well, a rather unusual story. You've probably read it, many of you before, and probably just kept on reading it. Wondering, I don't know what that's about, but heh, I'm into chapter 20 now. <laughs> this is the story of a sacrifice of a red heifer. You don't hear that preached often these days. <laughs> but we are today. The red heifer is a special sacrifice, as we're going to see. It was given to Israel for the purification of sin in association with touching a dead human body. Now, in case you don't know, a heifer is a young cow. And a red heifer is a very special cow, a very rare breed. And in, in this case, it's set apart as a sacrifice so the Israelites can be cleansed of their uncleanness. So since it's set apart for a very special purpose for the Lord, you could say it's a holy cow. <laughs> Hence the title, Holy Cow, It's Jesus. <laughs> That's our title. And we'll get into why in just a second. Why would God have the Israelites sacrifice such a cow? Well, let me offer for you some, some options to consider. It's possible because the Egyptians, who just had them in slavery for all these hundreds of years, held cows as sacred. And maybe God just wanted to show Israel how foolish all that was. You see, they would use cows in worship of their false goddess Isis. And the Egyptians as well, they did sacrifice a red-colored animal, but it was a male. It was a red bull something to think about so that red bull is the idolatrous sacrifice of the Egyptians just you know enjoy that after church in other words they only sacrifice the males but they sacrifice them in that ritual to an evil demon who history says was named Typhon you know in weeks to come, we're going to see after Christmas and the New Year's, we get back to the book of Numbers again, we're going to see that there's going to be a string of some other pictures and types and illustrations of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Numbers. But uh, today we're going to look at the red heifer and how it is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and let me just say that I don't mean to be unkind in any way, but you know, you can go into a lot of churches these days and Week after week after week, all you're going to hear is human philosophy and self-help and, and all this sort of thing to make people feel good about themselves. And, but today, we're going to do some Bible study. We're going to dig into the Word of God. And, and the reason we do that is, well, the Lord is pleased when we do that, but the reason is, is that we actually believe that the only way that any of you are ever going to get real, genuine, life-changing help is to get it from the truth of the Word of God rightly divided. So we're not going to run away from it just because it may be a little more obscure, a little less common in its understanding. We're going to do some Bible study. Actually, I think you'll see, you stick with us, that it has some amazing practical applications for your life today. You guys ready to do some work? All right, good. I'm going to read the entire chapter 19. It's only 22 verses. Again, hang with me a little bit, and then we'll break it down. There's a lot of detail in this thing, but, you know, It'll, it'll come together. Numbers chapter 19. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And ye shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, and he may bring her forth without the camp. For one shall slay her before his face, and Eleazar the priest shall take of her blood with his finger, and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. 
and one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin and her flesh and her blood, with her dung shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until the even. And he that burneth her shall wash his clothes in water, and bathe his flesh in water, and shall be unclean until the even. And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, and lay them up without the camp in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel. For a water of separation, it is a purification for sin." And he that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And it shall be unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourneth among them for a statute forever. He that touches the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with it on the third day, and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. Whosoever touches the dead body of any man that is dead and purifieth not himself defileth the tabernacle of the Lord... And that soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. This is the law. When a man dieth in a tent, all that come into the tent and all that is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it is unclean. And whosoever toucheth one that is slain with a sword in the open fields or a dead body or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin, and running water shall be put thereto in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that toucheth a bone or one slain or one dead or a grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself and wash his clothes and, clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean at even. But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because he hath defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. And it shall be for a perpetual statute unto them that he that sprinkleth the water of separation shall wash his clothes, and he that touches the water of separation shall be unclean until even. And whatsoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean, and the soul that toucheth it shall be unclean until even. A lot of redundancy, a lot of details, a lot of stuff. We're going to break it into some very clear categories. I think you're going to see it, and we'll, we'll make the comparisons. Let's go to the Lord to ask for his help and guidance. How about that? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, as we look into the details of this story, I pray that you will help us to see the very clear parallels that you gave us in your word and the intention that you have for us even today to look back into the Old Testament law and to look back into the details of the, uh, the sacrifices and the things that literally the Israelites had to do to cleanse themselves of their, of their various sins and, and things that have caused them to be unclean. And yet there is an application for us today. We need your help to understand that. So we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. We ask that you would help, help us to see it and then to have the courage to respond to it. Because at the end of the day, to learn it is fun. It's great. But Lord, we need to be changed. We didn't come here just to hear something. We came here to be changed. We want to see you. We want to meet you. We want to know you better. So we ask that you do that miraculously through your word today in Numbers 19. Amen couple of key points. The first one in your outline is this, the typology of the sacrifice. The typology of the sacrifice. This is really the first 10 verses. Now, I've already given you the spoiler. The red heifer is a picture of Jesus Christ, okay? But in what ways? How exactly is that the case? Now, as we read through, maybe some of the words jumped off the page at you, and you kind of know where we're going to be going. Good for you. But if you're fairly new to Bible study, let me just say this, that the Bible is full of types and pictures and foreshadowings and similitudes. And when the Bible gives us such things, it's actually not that difficult to understand. It's not that difficult for you to determine on your own as you read and you study as well. Actually, all you need to do is learn the, the art and the science of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Let the words take you where they take you, and you're going to find the answer. It's actually not that difficult. So I've broken this down into kind of an outline for you so that you can see the parallels 
And it starts like this. The red heifer is a very unique sacrifice, and we'll see that. It's unique and different from all of the other sacrifices. The Old Testament's full of various animal sacrifices and blood sacrifices for various reasons. But it's a very unique sacrifice in several different ways. Number one, the sacrificial animal itself was to be of a very special order. The animal itself was special. So as we began in Numbers chapter 1 and verse number 2, we had, it said, bring a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish. Without spot. Well, the idea is, is that in the inspection of this red-haired young female cow, if they found even two hairs that were white or black, then they would say this is unfit. This is not a completely red heifer without spot. There's a spot of black. There's a spot of white. And we can't have that. No blemish. It can't be sick. It can't be maimed. It can't be damaged in any way. And in all these things, these are things that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, and we'll refer to Hebrews a couple different times, the book of Hebrews in your New Testament, which is written to the Hebrews, Jewish people who would have understanding of the Old Testament law and the sacrifices, and, and primarily in the book of Hebrews to show you how they find their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, we read this, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, here we go, sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, here's the comparison, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself, how? Without spot. Without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, the Bible itself is giving you the right comparison, showing the red heifer and that sacrifice is going to be compared to Jesus Christ himself. That very special order of the object of the sacrifice without spot. We also see it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19, talking about Jesus Christ. But with the precious blood of Christ, right, we're cleansed. As of a lamb, notice, without blemish and without spot. Both of the characteristics of the red heifer. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's talking about a lamb. I get that. The reference in 1 Peter 1 is really to the Passover lamb. And if you went all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 and the study of the Passover, you would find that as Israel was to find the proper lamb to slay and to take the blood and put on the doorposts and the top post, that it says, your lamb shall be without blemish. That lamb has to be without blemish, so without spot. In wherein is no blemish, well, that's, that's a very special sacrifice, and it points to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Numbers chapter one, uh, 19, excuse me, in, in verse number uh, 2, it says, which never came yoke, which never came yoke. Now, there's a parallel to that in Deuteronomy chapter 21, in verse 3, where it says, and it shall be that the city which is next to the slain man, they're talking about people touching a dead body again, even the elders of that city shall take and heifer, here you go, which hath not been wrought with and which hath not drawn in the yoke. In other words, working animals, animals who were mature and full-sized and strong and put to work and put the yoke on them to plow, they were considered common. And since they were considered common, they would never qualify for a sacrifice. You see, the sacrificial animal had to be special enough to be efficacious for you. It can't just be any ordinary run-of-the-mill version. It had to be very special. And in that context, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not common. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. And he stands as the only one who possibly could have a sacrifice that applies to our lives as well. Let's look at the second reason. Number two, the sacrifice was performed outside the camp. Outside the camp. Numbers 19, verse number three, it says that he was slain to be slain without the camp. Which, by the way, is unlike all of the other animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, which were slain on the altar in the camp of the tabernacle. But this one was done outside the camp. 
once again, going back to the book of Hebrews in chapter number 13 and verse number 12, it says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate, the gate of the city, the city of Jerusalem, in which was the temple of the Jews. Jesus Christ was slain on Calvary's hill, outside the gate, outside the city. And so, like the red heifer, he was slain without the camp. Number three, we're moving right along. The sacrifice, notice this, purified others, but rendered those that performed it unclean. When this heifer was slain, as we read through all of these items, well, first and foremost, it says in verse number nine that it is a purification for sin. So the, the sacrifice provided the blood and then ultimately the water, as we'll see in a moment, to purify the sin and to purify uncleanness. And it is similar to other cleansing sacrifices, for example, and there's many, but if you were to take your time, we're not going to do it. In Leviticus chapter 4, the sacrifice of the sin offering, where it says, for example, in Numbers 19.4, uh, you're to sprinkle her blood directly before the tabernacle seven times, and it talks about in verse 5 that her skin and flesh and blood and dung, those were all burned. Well, those are the same types of procedures that go on in the Levitical offering for sin, although that was done in, on the altar inside the camp. Uh, it's similar to the sacrifice that was used for the cleansing of leprosy in Leviticus chapter 14, where leprosy, if you're unaware, is that terrible skin disease that little by little eats away at your flesh and until, well, terrible things happen. I'll not describe them for you, but leprosy is, is a disease which is a picture, a vivid picture, physically, of what sin does to your life spiritually. And uh, leprosy had a certain procedure necessary for cleansing it. And among the things that were necessary to cleanse leprosy, we see the same things that we see in Numbers 19.6, where you needed cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet. What is that scarlet? Take your time and go over to Hebrews 9, and you'll see that it's actually called scarlet wool. These were things that were mixed with the sacrifice. But leprosy is a picture of sin. Why? It's an uncleanness in your flesh. It's an incurable disease. Left unchecked, it will kill you eventually. And those that contract it, well, they're required to remain outside the camp and far away from everyone else because, well, it can be passed on with contact. But no other sacrifice, none of those sacrifices for leprosy, for sin, for trespasses, all those other sacrifices, none of them deemed the priest that carried out the sacrifice as unclean. None of them. But this one did. This one's special. This one caused the person that administered the sacrifice, that administered the blood, that administered the ashes and the water, they had to be unclean until the evening. They were unclean for a while. The priest, the one who burns the heifer, the one who gathers the ashes, all of them. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary, as this typifies the life of Jesus Christ, man, it, it cleanses all of us. Amen? The blood that he shed, that cleanses all of us. It, it works for every single one of you. But the people that crucified him, they're guilty. The people that crucified Jesus Christ are guilty. Listen, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. We made reference to that earlier. And the very first verse of Deuteronomy 21 kind of sets the context. It says, if you find someone slain outside your city and, and you don't know who did it. So basically, you, you know, you're living whatever part of Israel you're living in. And, and, you know, there's, oh, there's a guy died out here. I wonder what happened. I, I didn't do it. I don't know who did it. I, we don't know who did it, but we don't want to be held responsible for it. So what are we going to do? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to apply the sacrifice of the red heifer, and there's a certain procedure you're going to go through. But before we get into that procedure of Deuteronomy 21, let me just say this. If somebody dies outside the city and you don't know who did it, that's the context. That's the context of going to the red heifer. 
then we're going to make the comparison to Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask you a question. Who is really responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? You ever thought about that? I mean, who's really responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? Well, listen, judicially, it's the Romans. The Roman government executed on a cross Jesus Christ. But nationally, well, it was the nation of Israel that was guilty, right? Matthew 27, verse 25, His blood be upon us and upon our children forever. Well, that was a bad move, by the way. The Lord was listening to that one. Judicially, it was the Romans, but nationally, it was Israel. But hey, physically, physically, it was Jesus Christ himself. John 10, 18 says, nobody takes my life from me. You couldn't possibly take my life from me. I lay it down willingly. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? The Romans? The Israelites? Jesus Christ himself? How about theologically? How about God the Father? Because in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. But you know what we probably ought to all consider? Practically speaking, who's really responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? It's all of us. Because it's our sin that sent him to that cross. It's our sin for which he died. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, there's a five-fold responsibility. You could say He died and we're not exactly sure who did it. How did this happen? Well, back to Deuteronomy 21, it kind of tells you what to do. You get the sacrifice of the red heifer in verses 3 and 4. You get to verse number 6, and it says that the men of the city will go out, and they're going to wash their hands over the heifer that, that is killed. And they're going to say in verse number 7, hey, look, we, we didn't do this. And in verse number 8, they're going to ask God for mercy so that they won't be held guilty of, here's the, here's the phrase, the innocent blood. The innocent blood. Whatever happened out here, I don't know anything about it. I'm going to wash my hands to this deal. Does that sound like anything you've read before? It sounds a lot like the story of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and Pontius Pilate, doesn't it? Matthew 27, starting verse 22. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more mob mentality. They didn't answer that question, by the way. They just said, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, what did he do? He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. You go carry it out. And then verse 25, I referred to, then answered all the people and said, his blood be upon us and on our children. And for centuries after centuries after centuries, the fulfillment of that statement played out in the lives of the Jewish people. Matthew 27, earlier in that chapter, in verse number 4, we have the story of Judas Iscariot, and he, when he betrayed Jesus Christ, and, and he decides to come back and give the money back. When he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, he decided, man, this was terrible. I I can't believe I made that mistake, went to give it back. And in verse number 4, Matthew 27, it says, saying, I have sinned in that I have, what has he done? I have betrayed the innocent blood. The innocent blood. In other words, Jesus is innocent and I betrayed him. When he's talking about the innocent blood, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, if you've taken the class that we offer here on how to study the Bible, you learn that there are certain key words and phrases all through your Bible that will have a doctrinal connection to certain events in the Bible, certain events in life and in history and prophecy. And the term innocent blood is one of those. Innocent blood is always going to point to Jesus Christ because the only man in history that ever lived who never deserved to die is Jesus Christ because the wages of sin is death. And he had no sin. He's the only one with no sin. All of us deserve to die. 
And we don't have to only because he died for us. His blood is innocent. Innocent blood. That's Jesus Christ. I want you to see something else about this sacrifice. Number four. One sacrifice was sufficient for many. This is really good. The ashes, when this heifer is slain and all the procedure has taken place and they burn the body and then somebody came in, another person came in and gathered up the ashes. The ashes were required to be kept and then ultimately mixed with water because one sacrifice, one red heifer produced enough ash to apply to a multitude of people. In other words, this was not like other sacrifices where every family at the Passover had to get their own lamb, for example. They didn't, every family didn't have to get their own red heifer. There just weren't that many around. It was very rare. It was very unique. It was very special. So when this sacrifice took place, we find that this sacrifice could apply to multitudes of people like we see in Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus says, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And back to Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse 11. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered, how many? One sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. One sacrifice, that's all that's needed. Listen, there's no doubt that the red heifer is a Bible type of Jesus Christ, giving that Old Testament Jew a glimpse into what their Messiah would be like, to what the Messiah would do for them once he showed up. That's what the Bible types are for historically. They teach us the lessons today. We can look back, but even back then, the Lord was beginning to give them hints. He was beginning to give them glimpses into what they would see fulfilled when the Messiah would come. That is the typology. Let's look at number two, the target of the sacrifice. The target of the sacrifice. So if the first ten verses basically lay out the typology and the parallels to the person of Jesus Christ, verses 11 to 22 speak more about the application of the sacrifice, the target, specifically, verse 11, any of those that touch the body of a dead man. So, you need to understand this. In the Old Testament, the soul of a man was literally stuck to the body. Therefore, any physical contact with anything deemed unclean in an Old Testament context meant that your soul also becomes contaminated. And that's not the case in the New Testament, praise the Lord. In the New Testament, something new has happened. Once you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God performs something very special. It's an operation made without hands. Colossians 2.11, a spiritual circumcision. The cutting away of the flesh, the body of the flesh of the sins. And so literally there is a cutting away of your soul from your flesh. And a New Testament believer now therefore does not have to worry about, well, if I, if I touch something unclean, you go through all those laws in the Old Testament where you read, if they do this, they're unclean. They're unclean for a day. They're unclean for three days. They're unclean for seven days. They're unclean for the rest of their lives. Un if they do this, they're unclean. If they do that, they're unclean. Well, we don't have to worry about that. Why? Because we have been spiritually circumcised. The flesh is cut away. And although our flesh indeed is a bad thing, man, our soul is unaffected. We are protected. We are whole. We are righteous in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't affect your spiritual condition. There is a targeted application of this sacrifice for us today, though, right? And without question, it has to have to do with this thing the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh in the Bible is not just your skin. We're not talking about the epidermis. The flesh in the Bible is that evil spiritual influence 
which is located in your physical bodies and the flesh left unchecked ultimately leads to death. It ultimately leads to death. Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, Paul says, who shall deliver me from this body, the body of this death? Because the body, the flesh, it'll kill you. Romans 8, 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So we're going to see, and you might not be surprised, that there's going to be a dual application of this sacrifice for us today. And the first most obvious application is, letter A, to lost sinners. To lost sinners. Now certainly, any time that we're going to talk about a sacrifice that is, Numbers 19.9, a purification for sin. We're going to make comparison to Jesus Christ's death on Calvary for your sin. Amen? Of course. So when we read things in the New Testament like John 1.29, where John the Baptist, right, it says he sees Jesus coming and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Up until that time, none of it ever worked. Remember what we read in Hebrews? They stood constantly in the temple, constantly offering sacrifices that could never take away sins. The blood of bull and goats can never take away sins, right? That's what we read in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. We'll look at it again. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Peter describes it this way, 1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls. That's the issue. In the Old Testament it was connected to the body. Now it's not anymore. How do we get this? Seeing you have purified your souls, New Testament person, in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Verse 23, how? Being born again. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. How do you purify your soul today? By being born again. That's how you purify your soul. It's by the blood of the one only sacrifice that ever needs to be done, the one true capital L Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You purify your souls by being born again. That's for lost people. We go back into our text in Numbers chapter 19 and it says in verse 4, Eleazar the priest shall take of her blood with his finger and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And again, you can take the time and go to the parallel in Leviticus chapter 4 for that sin offering where the blood was sprinkled in the tabernacle. But since Leviticus 17.11 tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood, then we can go to Hebrews 9.21 and understand where it says, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. You understand that. You've talked about that before. You understand that your sin can never be purged. You can never be cleansed, ever, if it's not for the shedding of blood. Jesus Christ had to shed his blood. But the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament, that was never sufficient. It was never enough. They only pointed to the much better true that was still yet to come. Go back to Hebrews 9, verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. The patterns of the things in the heavens were the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple. These, they should be purified with these, the blood of bulls and goats. You see, the physical Old Testament sacrifices were nothing more than patterns and shadows and pictures and forerunners of the ultimate fulfillment that was yet to come in the person of Jesus Christ. The pattern of these things in the heavens should be purified with these blood sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, even better sacrifices than these animal sacrifices. So Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. The sacrifice represents that cleansing 
that we all need for our sin. But before we just move on from this point, you have to get this. Each and every one of us. Just the fa- Listen, the fact that Jesus did it, it's a true fact whether you believe it or not. We'll be talking about it throughout Christmas and the friends that you might invite to church that, that don't believe it. It doesn't matter if they don't believe it. It's still true. But just because Jesus shed his blood to pay for our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness does not mean that it's applied to your account unless you do something to apply it to your account. Do you understand that? You have to apply it to yourself personally. Numbers 19.12, it says, He shall purify himself with it. Now, we're not talking about saving yourself as a result of doing some number of good works. But you do make the application yourself, amen? Nobody else can do it for you. Um, Not even God himself, Calvinist friend. He left that to you. You have to decide. You have to repent of your sins. You have to ask for forgiveness. You have to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. That's your application, of one sacrifice for sins forever. You have to make that decision. But there's another application. There's another target audience. And that's letter B. This time it's to save sinners. To save sinners. Because there's another judgment in the Bible that's very important for you to understand. We talk about the the judgment of Jesus Christ on Calvary for our sin. But this is the believer's judgment of himself after salvation. Now, we don't do a lot of plugs around here, but we have started a podcast, Pastor Troy and I and Pastor Brett Bartlett, and we have a weekly podcast. And just not too many weeks ago, we discussed the judgments from the Bible. And we talk about the judgment of Christ on Calvary, the judgment of sin, and then the believer's daily self-judgment being the judgment of sins, plural, the sins that you accumulate in your life even though you've already been forgiven of them. So even though our sins are forgiven, right, because of our salvation, God still asks Christians to examine and to judge ourselves daily to keep our lives clean before Him. The Bible word for that is sanctification. It's sanctification. And sanctification is the recognizing, judging, and avoiding any sin in your life daily. That's what sanctification is, practical holiness. Christ has made me holy positionally, but practically as I live it out, well, you know, it's been a bad day. I had a rough day. I didn't necessarily do a great job today. Okay, practical sanctification is this. It's the recognizing of any sin. It's the judging that sin and then avoiding it, not having it be a part of your daily life. And I don't know if all y'all really understand this, and I, I wish that somehow I could look each of you one-on-one in the eyeball and help you to understand it if you don't yet understand it. But this very idea of practical holiness and, and progressive sanctification is the reason why Jesus Christ left his church the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Do you know that? That's the reason for the Lord's Supper. And the reason why I preface it by saying I wish I could get each and every one of you one by one to get this is because I know when we have Lord's Supper, you all don't come. You don't value, you don't understand, you don't realize how critically important this element is in your spiritual life. So we find that ordinance described for us most completely in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll pick it up in verse 27. And those of you that partake in the Lord's Supper regularly, you're well familiar with these verses. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But notice, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And so that whole idea to participate in the Lord's table unworthily, it didn't say unworthy, 
It didn't say unworthy. That would be an adjective. Unworthily is an adverb. The manner in which we participate would be coming before the Lord to participate in the bread and the drink without examining ourselves, without judging ourselves, without daily, as a believer, self-judging the sins we've accumulated in our dirty walk, stuck inside, living inside this body of flesh. We all struggle with it. So here, then, lies the application of the red heifer sacrifice. Several points for you to consider. Number one, notice in the red heifer sacrifice, the target audience is God's Son. The target audience is God's Son. This was given to the children of Israel. They are believers. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, we've seen this before. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my Son. Even my firstborn. That's the Old Testament application of the Son of God. It's the corporate body of Israel. But that's not the New Testament application. John chapter 1 and verse 12 gives you that. But as many as received him. Have you received him? To them he gave power, gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So this sacrifice is given to those who are sons and daughters of God, Christians. People who have understood can make the parallel application as a saved person who yet still struggles with sin. The cleansing is for the times when they, the sons, become unclean. And they need to be restored back to cleanness. That's what needs to happen. So let's go on with number two. The uncleanness comes from touching a dead body. We saw that already. We already determined the Old Testament touching is because your soul is stuck to the flesh and you contaminates your soul, but not in the New Testament. Yet, nevertheless, we find some interesting parallels. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 17, it says this, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Notice, and touch not the unclean thing. Why? I thought it doesn't matter if I touch stuff. Hang on. And I will receive you. Well, you now understand how God uses the word touch in a New Testament sense. For example, you Bible students, you'll remember, or maybe you were with us when we studied 1 Corinthians. You can on your own go back and look at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 1, where it says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And we understood when we studied that that it doesn't mean... It doesn't mean that. It means to have, have relations with. That's what it means. To, to have intimate, interpersonal relationship. That's how the word touch is used. And so touch not the unclean thing, although words matter, and God used the same word, and you can make the parallels as you do your word study in the Bible. He says, listen, you need, to, you need to pay attention to this thing. You need to not interact with, you need to not have relationship with things that are unclean, right? That's why at the very beginning of that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that's that whole deal where it talks about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now that couple verses down, we go into chapter number 7 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, look, let us cleanse ourselves, like Numbers 19, from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What in the world is he talking about? Well, let me tell you who doesn't know a lot of Bible teachers. <laughs> let me tell you who doesn't know a lot of Bible colleges. I'll tell you who doesn't know a lot of guys who write commentaries. Because this particular verse of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 7.1, is so often mistaught and misunderstood into thinking that a born-again Christian who's had a spiritual circumcision in some way, here's we do Bible Q&A, this question comes up invariably. How is it possible that a Christian can have filthiness of the Spirit? How is that even possible? My spirit was dead. It received life when the Holy Spirit came in to dwell in my spirit. You tracking with me? How is it possible for that to be filthy when the spirit is holy? Well, you're not paying attention to the words. Because a Christian in of himself has no filthiness of the spirit. It's actually impossible. You can't possibly have it. How do you know that? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse number 11, it says this, And such were some of you. How were some of you? Well, verses 9 and 10, it has a whole list of sinful things. 
unrighteous, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of self with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of those guys are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 11, And such were some of you. But, praise the Lord, you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. The filth spoken of in 2 Corinthians 7.1 clearly is defined in the context. Touch not the unclean thing. What is the unclean thing? It's all the unsaved people that you're not to be unequally yoked to. They have the filthiness in their spirit and their flesh, and you are not to intermingle with relationships with them. You're to separate yourself from them. In other words, don't contaminate your soul with the spiritual death of others. Get it? Don't contaminate your soul with the spiritual death of others. Number three, cleansing comes from the mixture of the remnant of the sacrifice. So after the sacrifice, the ashes were collected and mixed together with running water, and a clean person would take the hyssop and sprinkle the unclean person. If the unclean person did do this, he was to be cut off from the congregation because he's defiled the sanctuary. Now, the way to do that is by applying that which remains from the sacrifice. All that remained was the ashes after the sacrifice is all over. Now in our lives, the way we do that is by applying that which remains after the death of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice on Calvary. Now we're not talking about physical ashes, but what is that that Jesus Christ left behind to remain so that he can continue to keep us clean in our lives? Well, you mix the ashes with running water. Running water is alive. It's living water. John chapter 7, 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What are you talking about? But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. But when Jesus was glorified, the Holy Spirit was given. He remains after the sacrifice. Compare that with Ephesians 5, 26, where it says that he might sanctify and cleanse it, he, Jesus Christ, cleanse it, his bride, the church, with the washing of water by the word. You knew you were getting there. So what did Jesus leave behind to continue to do his work after he ascended to heaven? He left the Holy Spirit and he left the word of God. Amen. The Holy Spirit works in your life through the avenue of the word of God to cleanse you from your daily sin and to keep you in fellowship with God. That's the ashes of the heifer with running water. It's a beautiful picture. Number four, the cleansing agent, like we saw before, has to be applied personally. That ash and water had to be applied by hyssop. Hyssop, if you don't know, is just a plant, a flowering plant that was dipped into it and was used to sprinkle. King David the man after God's own heart, a great believer, follower of Jehovah, still sinned in the matter with Bathsheba. And when he repented of it, he prayed this prayer to God in Psalm 51 and verse number 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, because hyssop is a picture of your faith. The only way to apply the forgiveness and the daily cleansing that Jesus Christ offers for your daily uncleanness is from the Holy Spirit through His Word when you believe it. When you believe it. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the Word of God which you heard of us you received it not as the Word of men but as it is in truth the word of God, notice which effectually worketh also in you that believe. 
It doesn't effectually work in you if you don't believe. You say, I've been to church all these years and ah, none of this stuff seems to work. Well, the problem's not with the Lord. The problem's not with the Spirit. The problem's not with His Word. The problem's with you, man. You refuse to believe what He said. And until you decide you're going to believe in what He said, well, there's no hope for you. And I can't fix you. You can come to me, and we can sit, and we can counsel, and we can talk, and we can cry, and we can pray all day, all night, for months and months and years. If you refuse to apply with the hyssop of faith the water and the ash to your life, you will never be clean. That's how he works. That's what the picture is. One last point. you got to get this. Refusal to cleanse yourself results in removal. Anytime a believer gets defiled with sin and refuses to repent, refuses to get forgiven, refuses to clean it up, refuses to turn from it, refuses to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, refuses to let the Holy Spirit speak through His Word, believe it, and change, he's to be cut off from the congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, a carnal church, you know that. Verse number 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, leaven is always bad, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. So ye, church, are the lump, you are the, you are the, the, the body he's talking about. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. He's not saying don't ever have anything to do with lost people who have those problems. That's all lost people know how to do. (laughs) You'd have to leave the world to have that happen. That's not what I'm talking about. Verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. Notice, here's the qualifier. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat. Because food is fellowship, and you need not have fellowship with that. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge that them that are within, but them that are without, without the congregation, outside the camp of the congregation. God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person, so that God can deal with them, and you don't get contaminated. Because his residual sin, well, it defiles the tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye collectively are? The church is the new temple, spiritually speaking. And if any singular man defile the church, Woe unto that man. Him shall God destroy. Him shall God destroy. We call that church discipline. We call that church discipline. It's the responsibility to keep the body of the church holy. That's the application of the red heifer, to save sinners. It's a a picture, but it's a picture for you. And there's two applications. First and foremost, are you sure that you're saved? Have you received the blood atonement applied to your life by faith? Do you know that Jesus did what he did is effective for you? Have you personally made it your own? Not just that he did it. Have you made it your own? Have you asked for forgiveness of your sins? Do you see your sins nailing him to the cross? Let me ask it this way. If God forbid your physical life ended today, are you 100% certain that your home eternally would be in heaven? If by chance the answer to that question is no, man, it's available to you today. But most of us would say we've done that. 
And yet among us, there's certainly people who would say, yeah, I've, I've let the, the dirt of this world contaminate my soul. I, I've, I've gotten involved in relationships that I shouldn't. I, I do things that I shouldn't. I say and I go places I shouldn't. And the Lord knows it. And I need the running water and the ashes of the heifer to be sprinkled over me. And I need to be cleansed. I need to repent of that stuff. I need to get it right. I need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. If that's you, would you do that today? You, you didn't come here without purpose. God saw to it that you were here today. And this scripture is read in your sight for you so that you can make the change. Let's do that. Let's pray together.